Yeah, I would like to just <clears throat> greet everyone this morning again also in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, the one who is our righteousness, the one who is our salvation that has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And in him, it's in him that we move and how's the verse go? We move and have our our have our very being. He is our all in all. Um, the one who made us, the one who created us, the one who has given us life, life more abundantly, um, and the one who knows how to recreate us at any given time that we need. Um, we can look to him um, for that. So uh, <clears throat> thankful and blessed with the thoughts and devotions that have come today already. And um, just like to continue, I guess, with this uh, <clears throat> thought again on the, on the Pharisees a little bit, another um, segment of this. Um, maybe getting into a little bit more um, how do we relate to it or um, why is this uh, why is this spirit still alive and well today and uh, you know and it shows itself it shows itself among the churches, or it shows itself among God's people more than any place else, I suppose. Um, somebody that doesn't go to church, or is not attending, or doesn't even claim to be a Christian, um, this spirit is probably not there, it doesn't exist, the spirit of the Pharisees, um, relating to probably self-righteousness a lot. But, so, just to give a little, um, an introduction here, um, of what the writer had shared <clears throat> as a point of uh, point of view. So he says, in January of 1973, right after he got married, I was stationed in Mishawa, Japan. And from the point of view of, of gaining or growing in my spiritual growth, it was one of the best things in life that happened to me. I discovered there on that uh, on that. In Japan, where he was stationed, I discovered there was a group of Christians that was meeting together, and I was excited about to become part of that group. And one of the first questions that they asked me when I got there um, <clears throat> in that group was, how long have you been a Christian? And I answered, about seven years. And they said, great, none of us have been Christians more than two years, so you can answer all our questions. There are times in life when you immediately recognize that you are in over your head, and this was one of them. When I tried to answer questions based on what I had heard a preacher say, or my Sunday school teacher, they would just smile at me and say, yes, but what does the Bible say? It was that one repeated question that continually brought me back to God's word, and it's not what others had said. <clears throat> A few years back, I sat in a group of preachers listening to a rather one-sided discussion of a current, hot, a current hot topic within a brotherhood. I really didn't have much to say because I was mostly listening to, what, to some people who seemed to have all the answers. Finally, somebody asked me what I thought, and I replied that on this topic, I generally would ask people to go and read the very few biblical passages that deal with this subject and then to make up their minds 
on what they believed God had wanted of them. And I was shocked when the guy with all the answers basically told me that would not be good enough. It would never work. That I really needed to insist that people would adopt the view of one of his favorite authors who dealt with the question that was the questions that was involved in his book. I guess I was amazed that I needed this brother's book in addition, or maybe instead of, the Bible. Third part. <clears throat> Our brotherhood has not handled well the issues of differing opinions on what the Bible teaches on a variety, on a wide variety of subjects. And perhaps the main reason that we've been plagued with divisions is because of this one thing. It's the inability to allow a variety of opinions while maintaining our unity. The surprising thing about this is that this is the very same thing that drove the, the restoration movement in the early days of in Christianity, like even in the, you know, in the Anabaptists, and even when Ulrich Twingley, um, when those people all came out, it's kind of like, so, um, you know, the, it was infant baptism back then, and they always had practiced it. Um, Martin Luther, um, you know, he was also, but they would, they, so just one subject, one item, you know, and, and it, it, that question was, what does the Bible say? Drove that movement a lot. Um, <clears throat> so um, let's keep that in mind, I guess, even for ourselves um, or any place we find ourselves in, in encountering. Um, you know, I always put it like this. It's kind of like, so what is the truth of the matter? Even if it's not even on a, on a scriptural standpoint, but in any scenario, any situation that we find ourselves in, in uh, conflict or contention, you know, what is, the, what is the truth of the matter? What is the whole, what is the point? We get so sidetracked with, uh, with lots of other things. <clears throat> so just a little more, um, there's a guy by the name of Thomas Campbell. He wrote uh, a declaration and he addressed he addressed this scenario in a couple of different ways. And I think I'll just read these for the sake of, of getting a little um, more maybe understanding, I guess. <clears throat> so, the, the church of Jesus Christ upon the faith of the earth, upon the earth, earth must necessarily exist. It exists, and we know it. We see this. This is real to us. It exists in particular and, dis and distinct societies. It may be this group here and that group here and this group here and this group here, you know. Locally separated from one another. Yet there ought to be no schisms, sch schisms, if I'm pronouncing that right, no uncharitable divisions among them. They ought to receive each other as Christ Jesus hath also received them to the glory of God. And for this purpose, they ought all to walk by the same rule to mind the same thing, to speak the same thing, and to be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. That's what Scripture tells us. You know, even though they're there, we should be we should be of of like minded. That in order to this, nothing ought to be in in calculated upon Christians as articles of faith. 
nor required of them as terms of communion. You know, um, but what is expressively taught and joined upon them within the word of God. Nor ought anything be admitted, this is kind of an old English writing, as of divine obligation in their church constitution or managements, but what is expressively joined by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles upon the New Testament church, either in express terms or by a proven precedence. Here's another prop, another example. That with respect to the commands and the ordinances of our Lord Jesus Christ, where the scriptures are silent as to express time or manner of performance, if any such there be, no human authority has power to interfere. In order to supply the supposed deficiency by making laws for the church, nor can anything more be required of Christians in such a case, but only that they so observe these commands and ordinances as will evidently answer the declared and obvious end of their institution. These are not all full sentences, okay? They're all just phrases of, of his expression of a church and how it should operate. Much less has any human authority power to impose new commands or ordinance upon the church which our Lord Jesus Christ has not enjoined. That's not back scripturally from the word of God. Nothing ought to be received into the faith or worship of a church or be made a term of communion amongst Christians that is not as old as the New Testament. <clears throat> you know, and I lived with just that one thing a lot. There was always um, stipulations and... and uh, things put upon the terms of you're fit or you're not fit to take communion. And it was in just somebody else's eyes, somebody else's is terms or somebody else's interpretation. Um, you know, <clears throat> there's one more here. And that although the influ inferences and deductions from scripture premises, when fairly inferred, may be truly called the doctrine of God's holy word. Yet are they not formally binding upon the consciences of Christians farther than they perceive the connection and evidently see that they are so. For their faith must not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power and the veracity of God. Therefore, no such deductions can be made terms of communion, but do properly belong to the after and progressive edification of a church. Hence it is evident that no such deductions or inf inferential truths ought to have any place in a church's confession. So despite the reasonable idea um, coming out of a period of, in history when denominational factions warred against each other, mostly because of their human dedu deduced doctrines and opinions, we have created the very kind of division, we have created the very kind of division that the early Restoration Movement leaders tenaciously fought against. They wanted to try to not let that happen. <clears throat> In other words, the spirit of the Pharisees still reigns today. So we need to see how Jesus conflicted with the Pharisees over the very issue of a binding human interpretation. 
And we'll find this first example, I guess, if you want to turn to me with Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to read um, several verses here. Part of the chapter, I guess. <clears throat> but first we, uh, um, Exodus ch chapter 20, um, <clears throat> first eight, verses 8 to 11. I'll read this first. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. <clears throat> okay, that's the, that's, the old, that's the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 20. <clears throat> so Israel was introduced and instructed to remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy, to work six days and rest on the seventh. And remember what we said you know, back with the scribes and the Pharisees, their intentions was to not let people forget the law. And whatever they had to do to make so that we can uphold this and not, and, you know, that was, it was a noble calling or it was a um, valuable thing that they was trying to do. And yet they added so much to it to keep people from even getting close to breaking one of them laws. So the Pharisees, what they did in this, in, in that scripture right there, what is the definition of work? How would you describe work? And that's what they tried to do. They tried to label everything that they thought would be a definition of work. You can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this. This is work, 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 work. So what would it be? Can I feed my horse in the morning? Can I take care of my chattel? Can I cook breakfast? Can I get up out of bed? Our thoughts can go many ways, but what is the definition of work on a Sabbath? So the law was given there, but here's where the Pharisees will take, would take these things and would try to make sure that no one breaks that law or that command. Um, <clears throat> so the Pharisees had divine, defined work in every conceivable possibility. The issue was never about working on the Sabbath. It was about what was or was not permissible. So Matthew chapter 12, we can stand and we're going to read this from 1 to 14. <clears throat> At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and his disciples were and hungered, and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold! Thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. It's not lawful. It was the first day, you know, the accusation. But he said unto them, he give them an example. Have you not read what David, 
did when he was an hungered, and they that were with him, how he, how he entered into the house of God and did eat the shewbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? They can profane the Sabbath and be blameless. But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. These are Jesus' words and referring to himself when he's talking here in Matthew, trying to get them to recognize that there's someone here that is much greater than that temple. But if you had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. <clears throat> and when he was departed hence, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man which had his hand withered. And they asked him, saying, Again, is it lawful <clears throat> to heal on the Sabbath days that they might accuse him? They're looking for a reason to accuse Christ. Breaking the law. Breaking their commandments. <clears throat> and he said unto them, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep? And if it fell into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. Then saith he to the man, Stretch forth thy hand. And he stretched it forth, and it was restored whole, like as unto the other. Like as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and held a counsel against him how they might destroy him. <clears throat> you can be seated. Okay, so we see here the accusation that they brought against him um, twice, two times at least, maybe three times. You know, they, they ask him, don't you know what the law says? Don't you know what our laws read? Is it, it's not lawful for you to do this on the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to heal on the Sabbath as an accusation. <clears throat> um, and what is wrong, what, what, what was wrong with this that he was trying to correct them on was the fact that this was their interpretation of work. This was their interpretation of going against the law. The Pharisees' accusation, your disciples, your disciples do that, what is not lawful to do in the Sabbath. The problem is, <clears throat> can you find that in the law? Could they find that, that it was, that they couldn't eat if they was hungry? Can you find that? That's what he's at, that's, that's kind of the question um, <clears throat> that he's pointing to them, or interpreting. So, but in their mind, in their interpretation, which to them, this was equivalent of the law of working on a Sabbath. Their interpretation was equivalent to the commandment that we read back in Moses, Exodus 20 there. <clears throat> so, and Jesus showed them example, what David did. He was hungered, and he went into the, he went into the temple, and he got bread, and he fed himself, and he fed his meat, his men, because... They needed it for, to sustain their lives. <clears throat> and he also told them, don't you know that the priests 
What for work are they doing on, on the Sabbath? They can even, he said, they could even, I don't know that they could even prof the priests in the temple that they profane the Sabbath. I don't know that, you know, that sounds like a strong word, profane it, but it just simply means they go in there and they do their work and it's on a Sabbath. And that's that was permissible. They said that's okay. <clears throat> and then when Jesus said, Quoted that other verse there. He was actually he was actually quoting Hosea. Uh, Jesus said if they had understood the prophet of God, they would have had sympathy instead of condemnation for for his disciples. <clears throat> and then the same thing in the example that we have in the in the healing that man. He was there and he was there in place. And the Pharisees put the challenge in front of him. You know, should, you know, is this work? Can you do this? Um, the healing man on the Sabbath. But we know that the Pharisees also allowed exceptions to the work rule. You know, there was, there was exceptions to their own rule. Rescuing the domestic animal. Defending for yourself from attack, you know. Um, or like saving your belongings if your house would have been on fire. There was exceptions to the rule. And even in that Sabbath day journey, take a pair of shoes and put it out there, an article of clothes, and put it as far as you can walk. You know, in that certain time, then when you get there, you have something of yours there, so you can go another Sabbath day's journey. You can continue to, to walk on the Sabbath. They had all those things. <clears throat> and then Jesus' challenge to them in all that was, um, in verse 12, how much, how much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore, it's lawful to do well on the Sabbath, because a man was much more valuable than sheep. But here's what, we go back to Matthew 15, verse 8. <clears throat> um, Jesus had told them, on the scribes, he said, these people, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. And they come with accusations against him. They had, lost their heart, they had lost the heart of God while believing that they were so righteous that their words would be equal to God's words. <clears throat> so if we keep in mind... The issue that was on, the issue that comes forth here, like is it lawful, is this, this, and this, and this lawful work on the Sabbath? Um, they agreed, Jesus and the authorities, they agreed on the, Jesus and the Pharisees agreed on the authority of the written law back in Exodus. They both agreed there. Um, and they would agree that keeping the Sabbath holy was very important. We should. Um, the issue was not that working on the Sabbath was wrong. The problem was the inflexible concept of work based on limited human thinking while considering that concept to be equal to God's word. And every generation of people, you know, every generation of people, we, we, we probably wrestle with that very same problem, with that very same thing, you know, for example. We, we have it right here. Not that, I, not that I wrestle, but maybe you have and maybe you haven't. Is it okay for Jonathan to go track a deer on a Sunday? Is it okay for me to do this? You know, did, it, did, you, did anyone ever struggle with that? Is that unholy? Is that against what God said in Exodus? Or is he helping somebody? Or, is, or how, how is it? You know what I'm saying? So every generation can struggle with these things. And it can cause divisions if we let it. You know? It's not, it can break all kinds of unity if we let it. 
I, I didn't even think about that example until I'm sitting right here because I just thought we, we what is everyday examples we may have among us, you know? Um, <clears throat> every generation will wrestle, wrestle with this problem for we are prone to think that our conclusion must be right and nobody else could possibly be as right as that. It's like, I would never do that. You know, you wouldn't catch me here. And we can go down to little things, okay? We can even go down to smaller things that we know and we've had among us. If you travel on a Sunday, you better fill up your gas tank on Saturday night and not come home till Monday morning. You better pack your food and not stop to eat anyplace. Those are things I, that I learned. I had no clue coming from Allen County that that was, it would have been an issue in this community at, among the Amish. Make sure when you, when you leave on a, Saturday, you know, on a Sunday night, they would make sure that you have sandwiches and food so you don't have to stop and buy anything on Sunday because we're not allowed to buy things on a Sunday. It's unholy. Is it? Whose law is it? Whose interpretation is it? He was hungry. They went into the temple and got food, showbread, consecrated to God and ate it. David did, it says, because they were hungry. Do we take these to extremes? I don't think so. You know, do we, do we disacknowledge? It's like, oh, you know, I, I think it's okay to do less. I'm just talking personally. I think it's okay to do less. I think it's good to have your tank filled if you're going to leave, you know, Sunday morning or whatever, so you don't necessarily have to stop. But is it a sin if I do? Is it a breaking point if, if I have to? No, I don't. <clears throat> but these people, you know, it, what we see, what happened in Scripture, they drove it to the point that they crucified Christ, those very same people that made those laws. <clears throat> we must fight against this spirit of the Pharisees. We might even ask the question, why should we bother then to try to correctly even understand God's word? <clears throat> if it puts us in danger of thinking like the Pharisees. But that's not the problem. In searching out for a correct understanding or arriving to a, a, you know, a, a conclusion, a convincing conclusion, the problem is, is what is, the problem is binding on others what really our conclusions are and not specifically on God's word. The difficulty is seeing how correct our conclusions are, how correct conclusions, how correct conclusions may not be God's word in all reality. Here's some more examples. David Chadwell wrote these things, Beware of the Leaven of the Pharisees. Um, he reminds us of a lot of struggles that we maybe had in the past. And I might, I might have named a couple of these, and some of them I, just stood, I didn't, but I, I have them here. <clears throat> there was a time when many Christians believed that it would be worldly and it would be a sin if you attended any movie. Playing cards or any other game, type of games, would be sinful. You wasn't even allowed to own a deck of cards. Laughing, many Christians would regard any laughing or any joking or any form of merriment as that is worldly and unbecoming to a so-called Christian, anybody that calls himself a Christian. There are some Christians who would still believe in many of these things, but certainly not all of them. 
The real problem begins when we attempt to bind and demand that everyone accept and conform to the rules without really understanding why something may be wrong or may not be wrong. <clears throat> you know, we have, you know, I, so, so I grew up playing rook cards. Never thought it was a, a sin or, you know, a joke. It was a game. It was a, it was a game of competition type thing. Found out here that it was supposedly be you know be wrong. You shouldn't you shouldn't necessarily play rook, and even some of the people that grew up back in Allen County now think that you would never own a, a deck of rook cards or ever get them out to play. That, that that's it's their personal you know that's their opinion their thoughts on it. Um, I I think you know that you could have that strong opinion of yourself and not do it because if, if it violate your conscience or so forth. And yet, if you absolutely impose that on somebody else, then can we do that? <clears throat> so here's, here's an example of, of evidence <clears throat> showing the promotion of rules and not the understanding of a rule of, of it, not understanding of what God says. So let, if we take this passage of Scripture here, if we take it out of context to defend one's conclusion... Um, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, 16 says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. That passage has been used to attack lots of things. You know, that passage has been used to attack Anybody that smokes or anybody that would take in alcohol or, in, you know, don't you know that what you're doing is you're destroying the temple of God? <clears throat> the passage has been used, yeah, from smoking, drinking, drugs, so forth. In context, the passage deals not with an individual Christian, but with the church as a whole. It's a warning against anyone who would destroy the church by dividing it into a warring camp. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, and 20 teaches us that the individual Christian is a temple of the Holy Spirit, but the problem in that scenario is he's talking about sexual immorality. <clears throat> what you take into your own body is, is, destroy, is destroying in, in that sense. These texts are sometimes used to make a point that Scripture doesn't actually make. Does that mean we're always wrong to do that? No, but we must distinguish between what we have concluded, what God has actually said, because another person may or may not see how we had come to that conclusion. <clears throat> so we were talking about righteousness this morning also, <clears throat> you know, and believe that we are righteous before God or uh, the negative side of that, saying that we can never be righteous and righteous in that way, or our faithfulness. Um, those churches where the standard of faithfulness is based upon your church attendance. Conformance to every locally accepted dress code and the fact that the person does not drink or would not dance or would not play cards, but they can be dishonest in business materialistic and unloving people. But as long as they look right, talk right, smell right, act right, they can have their church attendance is perfect. They're labeled as very, very faithful. Uh, very, very righteous. Um, even though church attendance, dress codes, dancing, drinking, 
they do require conclusions that we get from the scriptures. They do, we do have guidelines, okay? We do have instructions. Um, can be drawn from the scriptures. While the things of honesty, materialism, and love are based on very clear scripture teachings. You know, Jesus said, if you don't love your brother, how do you love me? If you can't see your brother, how can you see me? There's, there's many, many examples of that, uh, honesty and so forth. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> which standard of faithfulness do we accept and which ones don't we? <clears throat> and the early restoration movement is what some of this was brought about, I guess. Um, their, 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 their thought process was, um, where the Bible speaks, we will speak, we will stand. Where the Bible is where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where the I get this wrong. Where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where the Bible is silent. <clears throat> There's places where the Bible may not be silent, or the where the Bible may be silent on a certain application or instruction of of what we have. Um, and to note to take notice of if you look back through history and every conflict in any, any church that, that ever was, have always been over conflicts or contentions over things that the Bible did not directly address. Did not specifically say. And if you take one little issue of baptism, I mean, it's not a little issue, don't get me wrong. It's an issue of baptism. It's not that it should not be baptized, but how should we do it? How does it need to be performed? Has split churches. It's not the thing that we don't get baptized. That's crystal clear. But how did they do it? We assume a lot of things. We, we are given instructions. I think we can give a plain plan. And I love the way we do it. I think it's fine. Do I condemn somebody that emerges? Absolutely not. Can they and be baptized? Absolutely. But if they turn around and condemn my pouring or sprinkling, then they're also in the other camp. If that, is, if, that is a, if that is a condition of being a member of the church, I don't want to be part of that church if it has to be a certain way. I just want to know that you've been baptized. And you've been repentant and been baptized in, in that sense. There's more that goes with that. But that, that's just an example. Almost all conflicts and contentions are over things the Bible doesn't directly address. That's where it comes in at. <clears throat> in other words, we often have a lot to say where the Bible never speaks. We have very little to say sometimes where the Bible is crystal clear. In matters of faith, matters of unity, in matters of opinions, liberty, and all things love. Um, where there is an arena of opinion, does it really exist? The problem with the Phariseeism is that it puts too much into the area of watchdogging everybody else and too little time working on our own faithfulness. I like that phrase. The, the spirit of the Pharisees many, many times puts too much watchdogging on you and you and you and you and you and not growing, not trying to increase, not trying to grow in, in, uh, in my own faithfulness, in my own connection to God, um, in, my own under, in my understanding of what he wants for me in my life. <clears throat> if it's permissible to hold opinions, which we all do correctly, 
must I demand that you hold every opinion that I hold for you to be faithful to God? I don't think so. So this Phariseeism that we have and that we've read about and understand, it came out of a zeal for God. It came out of a zeal for God. You see that also in a lot of movements and a lot of things. There's a zeal, a burning desire. I mean, that was our heart cry. We don't want a church except lest we can imitate and go back to the book of Acts, chapters 1 and 2, the New Testament church. That's all we want. Everything else doesn't apply. We had a burning zeal, a burning desire to obey God's law. And we wanted to make sure that anything else that smelled not quite like that, looked not quite like that, didn't sound like it, nothing to do with it. Nothing. Well, you know, we have come a long ways from there, I guess. I feel that we have and grown from it. We still need, we do need a zeal for God. We do need a desire to obey Him in all faithfulness. That's not wrong. Every Christian ought to do and to follow what God speaks to you in your heart and to follow His will in all His ways and to acknowledge Him. Like Job finally came to the point he acknowledged, okay, God, I'll start listening. You talk to me now. And what did God say? Where were you? I did this. I did this. I did this. The mistake we make is when our zeal becomes an excuse for determining everybody else's faith. I'll read that again. The mistake is made when our zeal becomes an excuse for determining everybody else's faith. Let's learn from these conflicts. Let's learn from the things that took place between Jesus and the Pharisees. Why did he record them in here for, if they weren't important for us to learn from? Why were they put in the book? You know? Why, why is that example given in there? Could have just discarded it. You thought it wouldn't have been important, but obviously it was. Obviously Jesus was trying to show us and to teach us. <clears throat> it helps us understand our nature of uh, personal faith, and it also helps us to understand how we should relate and correlate to others that also have faith in God and was created by Him, just like you and I, and, have, and has been given, you know. We know that at the end of time, it tells us that there will be none without, there will be no one with an excuse. There will be no excuse. All will know and see Him. All knees will bow. All tongues will confess that He is Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm open for sharing a testimony. <clears throat>